So we are two weeks from Christmas, and not only that, we are two weeks from Christmas, and the Chiefs are in first place, which means it's a, it's a good time in for fall sports um, around Kansas City heading into winter sports. You know, I love Christmas, um, so much so that I've been trying to, just the past couple of weeks, I've been trying to figure out why I love Christmas so much. Like, I will start thinking about Christmas 2017 on December 26th. Like I just live for the Christmas holiday. And I started trying to figure out a couple weeks ago, I thought I'm going to make a list of why I love Christmas so much. And the first thing I put on my list was because you get two weeks off of school when I was in school. Like I think that was my favorite part of Christmas, but not just being out of school. Both my mom and dad worked the entire time I was growing up. Um, Some of you live in households like that. Some of you are a household like that, but my mom and dad were both in education. So Christmas break was not just for the kids, it was for my parents. Like Christmas break, and my dad was a school administrator, so summer break, he kind of worked. Christmas break was like the only two weeks of the year that we were all home together all day, every day. So I, I love Christmas because it reminds me so much of good memories with my family. Um, Christmas was the time my dad would let me go outside growing up in um, the cold parts of Ohio and hang Christmas lights with him. I remember every Christmas getting to go out with my dad. First, he'd let me hold the lights, and eventually I got to move the ladder. Then eventually I got to climb the ladder and get up on the house and do lights. Now every Christmas I go out, my little girl Casey has become kind of my little Christmas elf that helps me out, and she holds the ladder and holds the lights. Eventually, she'll start putting lights on our house. I just love that part of Christmas. I love Christmas cookies. Like, I wait all year long for, like, the frosted Christmas cookies, the really good ones. And I think that's because growing up in a really small town, we had a house in our town where a family named the Bakers lived. That really was their name. And on Christmas Eve, like, everyone in town would make cookies and bring them to their house. And, like, every room in the house would have some massive table pool table, ping pong tables, dining room tables, kitchen tables, covered in hundreds, if not thousands of Christmas cookies. And in this little town of 2000 that I grew up in, um, it seems like all of me and my friends were running through their house at some point on Christmas Eve, grabbing cookies and drinking hot chocolate. So I just love the memories of Christmas cookies that are, um, that are there. Uh, And I, I loved before I went to bed, the anticipation of knowing that the next morning there would be presents under the tree. My family celebrated Christmas on Christmas morning. That's when Santa Claus came and brought the stuff to our house. I remember every Christmas Eve going to bed, just hoping that when I woke up, there would be presents under the tree and waking up in the middle of the night and sneaking down the steps to make sure they were there. And then the next morning getting to open them. I just love that as a kid. And now as a parent, I love watching my kids get to experience all of those things. Like some of you like to watch your kids experience those things. But it's only been in recent years that I've begun to kind of dig deep on the spiritual meaning of Christmas. Um, And that doesn't mean that I didn't know it was a spiritual holiday. Like growing up in church, I've played everyone in the nativity but Mary. Like, you know, I was that kid that, I mean, I was always probably from baby Jesus to a wise man, an angel, Joseph, whatever. Um, I did that whole thing. But only recently have I started studying the Christmas story as a Christian saying, what can I learn? How is this supposed to impact my life, not just my holiday? And the results have been surprisingly enlightening of what I've been learning that means a great deal to me spiritually right now. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 2 again. It's where we hung out last week studying about King Herod. And today, if you'll reach inside your bulletin and pull out your notes, or you can pull up our Journey Church International app, everything that's on the screen, all the verses, all the notes will be in that app so you can have it on your hand if you've got a tablet 
or a phone with you today. But in Matthew chapter 2, last week we met a man named Herod who feared losing control of his life so much that he tried to kill Jesus. He didn't try to kill Christmas, he tried to kill Jesus. And we looked at his life and we asked this. It was a good question. What areas of our life do we still struggle to give control of to Jesus? Financially, is little King Herod still sitting on the throne of our life? We give control uh, of our life a, a lot of areas to Jesus, but not that. Is it our family? Is it our past? What area in our life does the little King Herod still sit on the throne and say, you know, Jesus can every, have everything, but not that area. If Jesus crosses that boundary, we're going to have a problem. And we studied Matthew 2 through the perspective of King Herod. Today, we're going to meet a group of people who were so positively impacted by Jesus that they saddled up their camels and rode 500 miles across the desert just to say hi to him and bring him gifts on the first Christmas. If you've ever been grateful to get a gift at Christmas, it's because of Matthew chapter 2. Gifts were brought to Jesus. God gave Jesus as a gift. This is where the whole gift giving thing started. But today we read Matthew chapter 2 through the lens of the Magi, people positively impacted. And what, what I have learned about the Magi been mind-blowing for me as a kid who's grown up in church all my life, and the questions that this text has caused me to ask are causing some tension in my soul today. So let's read Matthew 2 together, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll jump into our outline. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, we know him now, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him, and when he called all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was going to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know, today Matthew introduces us to a group of people who saw a star and started on a trek to see Jesus. So I've titled our Bible study today, Star Trek. Way before Spock and his crew took to Star Trek, these guys saw a star and took a trek across the desert to go and see who Jesus was. And the reasons why they did this that I have learned um, are mind-blowing and challenging to me spiritually. And I want to share those with you today. Why would the Magi see a star and start a trek across the ancient world to go bow down and visit Jesus? Well, number one, the Magi owed their lives to the God of Israel. The Magi owed their lives to the God of Israel. And I want you, after you've written the word lives in that blank, I want you to go back to a different word because it's the stronger one that I want to focus on in a little while. I want you to underline the word owed. The Magi owed their lives to the God of Israel. Now, that's a big statement, but it's one that I believe I can back up biblically. So, okay, well, who were the Magi? Help me understand why they owed their lives to God. The Magi first appear in history in 7th century BC in ancient Iran. That's when we find them inter-secular history. Um, and this was kind of the, 
the modern Iran in what was the median nation. And the Magi were a group of priests um, of a religion called Zoroastrianism, which was the state religion of Persia, and it became the state religion um, of Babylon. These were guys who the office of the Magi was a religious office, and they had religious responsibilities. Here was the primary task of the Magi. Tell the king what God wanted and tell God what the king wanted. They stood in this really high political office between the king and God as the representative between God, the gods, and the kings. Um, They studied astronomy and astrology. Say, what does that mean? That means they looked at the stars to try to figure out if God was communicating. That's how, how they put those two together. They were experts in science, agriculture, mathematics, history, uh, religion, and politics. And they were the most powerful group of political and religious advisors in Medo-Persia um, and the Babylonian Empire. Circle the word Babylon on your sermon notes. This is where they come into contact, I believe, with the God of Israel. The Magi were kingmakers in the ancient world. This is not biblical history. This is secular history, Um, which is probably why Herod was so threatened. When the Magi showed up in the ancient Middle East, um, they showed up with power. They were kind of like the Knights Templar or the Freemasons of the National Treasure franchise. These guys carried heavy political power with them, and they had the money and power to kind of do what they wanted in political and religious realms, and they became the royal advisors to the Babylonian kings. And number five, their life, their office, and their existence were saved by the prophet Daniel 600 years before the birth of Jesus. So I told you last week, unless you really understand King Herod, you don't get Christmas like you're supposed to. This week, I want to say this, unless you can understand how to get Babylon, Daniel, the Magi, um, and Jesus all on the same side of the Rubik's Cube, Christmas isn't as clear as it's supposed to look to you. But if you can figure out how to get all those to line up, where you see Babylon, Daniel, the wise men, and Jesus all in the same kind of linear history, it's like, okay, that, that makes sense, and we can understand why they came to visit Jesus. To do that, i got to teach you just a little bit of history. In 605 B.C., there was a king over Babylon, which is just about 45 miles south of modern-day Baghdad, Iraq, um, that, that went and attacked and invaded Jerusalem. When he invaded Jerusalem, he evacuated kind of the the academic elite, the religious elite, and the social elite um, from Israel, probably all of them under the age of 25. But he said, if you're an upper-comer, if you're in an Ivy League school, if if you hope to have a future in politics, um, if you're highly educated, if you understand spiritual things, if you've been raised in a spiritual home, we're going to take you back and we're going to teach you to be like us. Among four of the guys that they took back of the thousands in 605 BC were four guys that we know as Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those four were captured and taken back in 605 BC, and they were put in the school of the wise men. They were put in the school of the magi. They were being trained in the religion of Zoroastrianism to serve the kings of Babylon. That was their job. And that's where we find them in Daniel chapter 2. Don't turn there when the God of Israel begins to act on behalf of the magi. And here's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He felt like God was speaking to him about the future of his country and the future of the world. Um, And he was troubled by it. He didn't know what it meant. So he called in the wise men and he said, hey, I had a dream. It's really upsetting to me. I need you to tell me the dream and then tell me what it means because I really feel like God's saying something to me. And the wise men said, okay, um, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he said, no, 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 no. If you really are who you say you are and you can do what you say you can do, 
tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. Because if I tell you the dream, you might just make something up to pacify me. The words magic and magician we get from the office of the Magi. So they were a little sleight of hand sometimes. So Nebuchadnezzar said, unless you can tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'm going to know you're just making it up. And they said, no one can do that. And Nebuchadnezzar said, then I don't need you. Kill them all. And we read in Daniel chapter 2.13 that the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death too. Why? Because they were training to become this. So they show up on Daniel's door. You can imagine those of you who have been in a dorm room, probably Daniel and his three roommates bunking together, shows up. Daniel's like, what's up? And the guy said, hey, we have to kill you. And Daniel says, why? That's a good question to ask someone who's coming to kill you if you're not aware. He says, why? And he told him the story. King had a dream. No one can tell him. And Daniel says, give me, an, give me, an, give me 24 hours. Let me and my friends pray to our God. And let me see if our God will tell me the dream and tell me its interpretation. Don't kill anyone yet. Give me, give me a day and we'll pray. Shut the door and told his friends we need to pray and ask God to reveal this to us. And that night, God revealed to Daniel, here was the dream. Here's what it meant. So Daniel in Daniel 2.24 says, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had commanded to appoint, who the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said, don't kill him. Take me to the king and I'll interpret his dream for him. He came before the king and said, oh, great king. He said, listen, I, ser I don't serve your God. I serve the God of Israel. And because the God of Israel wants you to know that he is the true God, he's revealed his dream to me. I'm not special. This is not magic, but God is powerful. Here's your dream. Here's what it means. And the king said, thank God someone knows how to communicate with God. Um, you're in charge now. And in Daniel 248, it says the king placed Daniel in a high position he lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and he placed him in charge of all of its, what? The wise men who were the magi. We think at this point, Daniel began to teach them about the God of Israel and the Old Testament scripture that would tell them about the great king that would one day come from Israel. You see, Daniel wasn't just a Christian that looked inward or backward or outward. A lot of times we find ourselves today, we look inward. What's God trying to do in my life? We look backward. What has God done in my life? Um, we look outward. What should I be doing right now? But Daniel looked forward. Daniel was a student of prophecy. Daniel wanted to know what would happen in the end times. Prophets were people who spoke what was going to happen on behalf of God, and they were proven to be prophets by if what they said really came true. And for many biblical prophets, it did. So we know as Daniel studied prophecy that Daniel studied personally under the prophet Jeremiah. They lived in Jerusalem for more than two decades at the exact same time. And Jeremiah ref Daniel referenced Jeremiah's prophecy in his writings. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll read Daniel saying, Jeremiah said this, Jeremiah said that. Jeremiah spoke on the coming king as much as any Old Testament prophet. So Daniel would have been looking forward to the coming king. We know the prophecies of Isaiah were more than a century old when Daniel was studying scripture. In Isaiah, Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 66, the entire portion of that scripture is about the coming king of Israel. And within that was written, and what would happen when the king of Israel came. And I'm sure Daniel taught these magi, Isaiah 60, verse 6, that when the king comes, herds of camels will cover the land, and young camels from Midian and Ephah and from Sheba, which is Iran, will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of our Lord. I think Daniel said a king is going to rise, and when he does, here's what you need to do. Get on your camel, get your gold, get your frankincense, he didn't say myrrh and, and come because that's what Isaiah says is going to happen. I believe they knew they were fulfilling prophecy. 
And Daniel had a firm grasp on the coming king known as Israel's Messiah. Half of his letter to the people of Israel was about it, which means Daniel probably taught the people Numbers 24, 17. This said, I see him speaking of Israel's future king, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. I believe Daniel taught these men that a star would symbolize a king who was going to come. And when that happened, they should get on their camels, they should come, and they should worship. You say, what was the star like? I don't know. All kinds of scientists have proposed lots of different things, from a comet in that area of the sky at that time to a planetary alignment that only happens once every 20,000, 50,000 years. I don't know what it was. I just know they understood that when a star rose in the east, they were supposed to look for a king in Israel and come and bring him gifts. And they did. But the Magi only came at Christmas because Daniel cared enough to tell them. Imagine if Daniel had God unpack the dream to him and if Daniel went in and said, here's your dream, here's what it means, but you can go ahead and kill everyone else. God has revealed the vision to me, but I really don't care about everyone else. He didn't do that. He said, don't, don't kill any of the people. I now understand what God wants And he wants to rescue everyone. You know, 2,600 years after these events happened, I believe there are still people in our lives who need to understand God like we do. And if, unlike Daniel, if we say, hey, we understand the plan of God and we understand the meaning of Christmas and we understand who Jesus is, but I really don't care if anyone else is rescued either, that would not be a good look for us spiritually. So I gotta ask you, as we near this Christmas season, Who have you started inviting? Who are you planning to invite? God has allowed you to understand what Christmas is all about, but you can't keep that to yourself any more than Daniel could have said, here's the interpretation of the dream. The God of Israel has spoken to rescue me, but I really don't care about anyone else. I I hope we have a church filled with people like Daniel this year who understand God has given them understanding to Christmas, not just for them, but for everyone that they know. And I hope you're active in inviting people to be a part of what Christmas really is. Please don't tell me that you're not planning to invite anybody. They may all say no, but let's be a church that invites the whole world to come hear about what God has done at Christmas. And the Magi were invited and they came. They saw something in the sky that brought them on a journey because they owed their lives to the God of Israel who'd rescued them through Daniel. So here's a key Christmas question for you. What do you owe God? And I want you to think on that for a minute because that's a short little question. I mean, it rolls off the lips pretty fast, but that's a pretty heavy question. I want you to think on that for a minute. If you weren't paying attention, pay attention. If your neighbor's sleeping, kind of bump them and say, hey, check this out. Listen to this question. What do you owe God? You may be sitting in here and you may be thinking, I don't owe God anything. And you may be sitting in here thinking, I owe God a little bit. But I wonder how many are sitting in here thinking, I got everything. The Magi's existence was saved by the God of Israel, so they felt they owed him everything, and they came. You know what? One day, our story's going to be written, and the way we have lived our lives spiritually, the way we give and sacrifice spiritually, the faithfulness we have to spiritual things, the commitment we have to spiritual things, you know what those all will be determined by eventually, ultimately, what we believe we owe God. What we believe God has given to us and done for us and what we believe we owe him in response. The Magi are a huge challenge to us at Christmas. This group 
believed they owed God everything, and they came at Christmas to acknowledge that. The way they came and why they came was so important. But number two, the way they left was pretty important too. The, the Magi left different than the way they came after an encounter with Jesus. The Magi left different than the way they came after an encounter with Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 one more time. It says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So we learned that Herod's henchmen had followed them to Bethlehem, and they were watching him because they wanted to figure out where this king of the Jews was born so that they could kill him, so they could take him out, so he wouldn't be a threat anymore to Herod. And the king probably said, just sit outside the city. I want you to tell me what gate they leave from. I want you to tell me what road they were on. I want you to tell me what borough or what neighborhood they drove out of. And then I want you to go knock on every door, find the one with the baby and kill it. So the Magi warned in a dream that Herod was going to do this. They left different than they came. Now, that's just kind of practical geography stuff, but there's a really important spiritual lesson in what we just read. Look at the steps that happened for these Magi. They met Jesus they worshiped him, and then they left different than they came. Let me say that again. They met Jesus, they worshiped him, and then they left different than the way they came. You know, a real encounter with Jesus leads to worship every time. And a life of worship looks different. Say, what do you you mean by that? Like the way I sing? A little bit. That's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, I I think the more we know Jesus and the more encounters we've had with Jesus, the more passionate our worship is, but I'm not really talking about the way you sing. You see, like the way I live, that looks different for sure. Um, The way you live after you meet Jesus and get to know him should look different than the way you live before you met Jesus. But I'm talking about the way you view life. There is no question that the way we view life and everything in life radically changes when you personally encounter Jesus, but not everyone does. Not even everyone in church does. You know, Matthew and Matthew chapter two presents us with a stark contrast between religious people and people who personally encounter Jesus. I don't know if you noticed them when we read through the text, but there were some religious people who knew about Jesus and they had a totally different response to what was going on than people who personally encountered Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Are you a religious person? Who knows about Jesus and maybe you've always thought that was enough? Or are you someone who has encountered Jesus and you're different because of it? Look at verses four and five. Herod's trying to figure out where this Messiah was born. So it says, when he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was going to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. I want you to stop right there. Since Genesis chapter 3, the people of Israel in their scripture history had been waiting on someone born of a woman who would come and rescue their nation. Like their entire religious system revolved around it. Micah, nearly 500 years earlier, had said it would be in Bethlehem. Now these kingmakers had come from the east to say he's finally here. And Herod said, hey, they're saying the guy we've been looking forward to for 4,000 years is here. Where is he going to be born? And they did a little spiritual search and said, oh, in Bethlehem, but they didn't even go. They had all the spiritual answers. They had all the spiritual knowledge, but they could really care. It did not impact anything in their daily life. Probably didn't even move them off their chair. They knew it all, but it didn't impact them at all. Is, 
is that maybe where you are spiritually? You know a whole lot, but it's not gone very deep into your system. The religious leaders knew about Jesus, but their knowledge didn't lead to worship and their life was not changed. Jesus was a spiritual thing for them found only in the pages of scripture, but not in the real world. Let me ask you this question. Have you invited Jesus into your life as a spiritual consultant to help you understand spiritual things? Is your relationship with Jesus a spiritual thing or everything? Let me say that again. Two of the words are the same and two of them are different. Is your relationship with Jesus a spiritual thing or everything? Because we see some chief priests that were like, you know, they had all the answers, but were unmoved. And then we see these magi, man, their lives were radically changed forever. Why? The religious leaders saw scripture with their eyes only. They knew it, but they were unmoved. The magi saw the star with their soul. They were looking for something more and they were changed forever. The Magi became different, but why? It's because they weren't looking for a star. They were looking for a savior. They weren't looking for religion. They were looking for something more than religion. The star just pointed them in the right direction. After seven centuries, 700 years of serving kings and trying to communicate between a God and a king to bring God's will to earth, after 700 years of seeing no king bring peace on earth, of, bringing, of seeing no king provide for all the hurting people in his kingdom, of seeing no king that could bring people together and love people, of seeing no king who could wipe away someone's past. They were looking for something greater than a king. They were looking for a savior. And they saw a star and it pointed them towards the savior. They knew religion. They knew every religion of the ancient world. But religion had let them down, this group of people, for 700 years. So they were looking for something more and they found it in Jesus. Which leads us to this question. How do you see Jesus? Is Jesus a spiritual thing or everything? Let me rephrase it and ask it another way. How big do you see Jesus? Do you see him in all of life or just in spiritual life? had somebody ask me in our church, a lady in our church last week that my wife and I are pretty close to came up after church last week. And she said, Christian, I got to ask you a question. Why, why does your church sing songs at Christmas that don't focus on Jesus? Like, like we did today, most wonderful time of the year. Some of you have probably thought the same thing. Why would you sing songs that don't focus on Jesus? And I just looked at her and very lovingly said, how could you hear any Christmas song and not focus on Jesus? Like, help me understand this. You see, for the Christian, there shouldn't be a difference between secular Christmas and spiritual Christmas. It's Christmas. It celebrates Jesus' birthday. It celebrates the Savior of the world coming to live on planet Earth so that he could connect people to the God of the universe. There isn't a difference between a secular Christmas and a spiritual Christmas. Let me unpack that for you a little further in an illustration that might dig a little deeper. Next 4th of July, I'm supposed to be in Israel. Right now, I'm slated to be staying all night in Jerusalem on the 4th of July. And you know what they'll be celebrating in Israel on the 4th of July? Nothing. Because nothing happened there on the 4th of July. You know what I'll do as an American when I open up my journal and see that it's the 4th of July? I'll think about our independence. I'll think about fireworks. I'll think about the freedoms that I have as an American. Just because I'm in a country that doesn't celebrate it, in a culture that doesn't celebrate it, doesn't mean that it doesn't live deep inside me and that it doesn't come to the surface every time I think of the 4th of July, regardless of what country and culture I am, I'm going to think about the freedom and independence of America because it's inside of me. It's deep inside of me. 
And if culture and customs can't take the celebration of American freedom out of my heart, how in the world can culture and Christmas carols take the celebration of the Savior of the world out of our soul? That Jesus is too little. The Jesus we only hear in certain songs is too little. So when I hear away in a manger in silent night, I think of Jesus. And when I hear, here comes Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman, I think of Jesus. Whether we're talking the disciples or the elves, I think of Jesus. Whether the gifts are gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or bicycles, video games, and clothes, Christmas is about Jesus. Whether we're talking Mary and Joseph or Rudolph and Red Ryder BB guns, Christmas is about Jesus. Whether there's no room in the end or the room is filled with chestnuts resting on an open fire and iced Christmas cookies, Christmas is about Jesus from the songs of Bing Crosby to the hymns of Fanny Crosby. Christmas is about Jesus. So you can say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Seasons, Greetings, Melikaliki Laka, or Feliz Navidad to me, and it all reminds me of Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. And people who say, no, Christmas is about Jesus at church, you have missed the point. Because Jesus didn't come to, to be born in a church. He was born in a manger, outside the city, outside the temple, outside probably of a home. He came to a world that didn't even recognize him, but that he loved. Why? Because he wanted to unite people with God. Jesus isn't the spiritual reason for Christmas. Listen, he's the only reason for Christmas. And Christians who worship a little bitty Jesus, who's so offended at everything that doesn't start with a capital J, we've missed the point. These religious rulers missed Jesus at Christmas because they failed to look for him any place other than the religious places. And the Magi saw him in a star because they were unwilling to stop looking until they had found the Savior. And God used the star to point them. Let me challenge you this Christmas not to be a religious ruler who only sees Jesus within the spiritual text and spiritual songs and within church services. Let me challenge you to be captivated like the Magi and to see Jesus in everything. Then Jesus won't just change your spiritual life. He'll change your entire life. And he'll change the direction of your future. You will leave different than when you came. You see, once the Magi met Jesus, they returned home different. If Christmas doesn't change you, you haven't spent time at the manger. Because the reality is this. Let me go back to the question and give you a multiple choice answer list now to choose from. What do you owe God? Well, if Jesus is who Christmas says he is, you owe him everything. And that was the Magi. If Jesus is who Christmas says he is, you owe him everything. If Jesus is not who Christmas says he is, you owe him nothing. There's your choices, there's your test. A and B, there is no C, there is no D, all these above. You either owe God everything or nothing, but it cannot be something in between. And a lot of people worship a little Jesus who they've given a little control to a little area of their life, but when they hear the question, what do you owe God? There's a little pullback from that. Talk to one of our teenagers after our second service who got in an accident on the icy roads Wednesday coming to church, a head-on collision. He showed me his car, showed me the other car in a picture. He's lucky to be alive. And he said, today I realize I, I owe God everything. Good answer. But that was also the answer before the wreck. We owe God everything. If Jesus is who Christmas says he is. 
If he's really God, you owe him everything. So Christmas forces us to ask a few questions that I want you to think about today in this Christmas season. What do you owe God? How big do you see God? And is he bigger than the spiritual places in your life? And have you bowed down at the manger? You know, Christmas is about Jesus coming to us, but one day we will go to God. The Bible says it's appointed unto every man once to die and then to face judgment. Jesus came down at Christmas. One day you'll go up. Are you ready to stand before God? So I've had a pretty good life. I think my good outweighs my bad. Are you ready to stand before God? Have you read his requirements? See, how can I get things right in God's eyes? You bow at the manger. That's all. You bow at the manger and see the savior of the world for who he is. You know, if you've not done that yet, I would love to connect you to the God of the universe today through Jesus. If you're in here today and you've not started a relationship with God through Jesus, I'm not talking about hearing a lesson about Jesus. I'm talking about starting a relationship, opening your heart and your life, all of it, and saying, Jesus, come in and just kind of take over. Forgive all the past, direct all the future. I just, I really want to follow you. I want to be connected to the God of the universe who loves me so much that he sent his son for me. If you've not done that yet, what are you waiting for? What better season than Christmas season to recognize the gift that God has sent and to accept it. Today, I want to give you the opportunity to reflect on God's invitation to be in relationship with him. So would you just bow your heads and would you close your eyes?